Welcome to the Crow's Nest, the place of the best view on the wind farm service vessel market. My name is Sue Allen. I'm an analyst at 4C Offshore, and this podcast is about the vessels used to support offshore wind logistics. That is crew transfer vessels, service operations vessels, accommodation ships and helicopters. I'm going to be talking to industry experts about subjects close to their hearts, including new design concepts and technology and other changes affecting offshore wind support. Welcome to 4C's Crow's Nest. I'm Sue Allen and I'm joined today by Kerry Foster, who is CEO of the Workboat Association. So welcome, Kerry, and thanks for coming along today. Yeah, hi, everyone. Um, ask Kerry to join us because I think it'd be really interesting to hear more about what the Workboat Association does, because I know bits of it, but not perhaps all of it. And I know you've got a lot of members who are active in the offshore wind industry. But first of all, how, how did you end up being associated with the Workboat Association and how did you find yourself here? OK, well, well, this goes back quite a long time, I guess. One of the originators of the association, uh, Norman Finley, who was later president, he was a supplier to the company I was working for. He was a surveyor and he used to often come and do a lot of our surveys on board our vessels. And he mentioned to my employer that companies should become involved with the Workboat Association because it was doing some really good things. Uh, this was at, at around 2007, 2008, I guess. So the, the employer I was working for then was a member. And then a few years later, as my role within the company expanded and, and the company changed a little bit, I got an mm-hmm. active role with the association, attending all of its meetings. And in 2015, I became the, the chairman of the Safety Forum. Right. Uh, and that's a group that the Workboat Association set up mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years previous in order to help industry to collaborate and, and share their safety lessons learned. So through my time doing that, I got to know everyone and that naturally progressed on to where I am today. Oh, that's, that's really interesting how people sort of move from one role to another. And, you know, the experience you bring with it is, I think, always interesting. I've talked to quite a few people and where they started out in life and where they move along to. <clears throat> There's so many amazing stories. And yeah, and I've, I've seen the Workboat Association grow over the last, well, I suppose, five, six years, especially. And but while I know quite a few of your members from being very operators and I'm aware that you have various events going on but what, what sort of services do you provide for mariners or so our members are particularly the vessel operators mm-hmm. although the service that we provide do filter down towards mariners specifically um, but also to the whole supply chain and stakeholders so we, we really support everyone from from apprentices to, to regulators and this includes surveyors of vessels right. uh, the supply chain for engineering and equipment to them training centers vessel fabricators and repairers and designers and particularly the vessel owners and operators themselves i would say that our output as an association has really grown as well as the membership over the years to a point now where our output is is the, the highest that it's been notably we cover advice from good practice and guidance to the operators but also to the industry making sure that in a unified approach the benefits of the workboat sector are are impregnated in everyone's understanding that is a stakeholder of the work that, that the industry and the sector is doing. Right. Um, and in that way, we not only create networking collaboration opportunities, but we also raise the benchmark of standards within the industry. Right. Because okay. I, I know also correct in saying that you helped develop the uh, workboat code so they were uh, suitable for using for crew transfer vessels. Yeah, that's one of that's one of the things that we've done. So the Workboat Association actually formed originally in 19. 
1994 to develop the original workboat code. That was updated in 2014 and 2019 sequentially. And at the moment, there is another revision taking mm-hmm. place, which is soon to go to public consultation this spring. So being a, a key part of the development of the workboat code, which the largest percentage of crew transfer vessels working in offshore wind are governed by, right. um, that's one of the key yeah, the key inputs from the association. Right. Is one of the changes that are taking place now, is that to do with going from 12 passengers up to 24? Okay, that that's yes, uh, yes, and and no. So the the UK and a number of other North Sea countries mm-hmm. have been testing regulations for expanding the numbers of persons able to be on board cargo vessels, including workboats. That said, a new form of person has been developed, and that is an industrial person, right, or industrial personnel, and that is somebody who is going to see regularly and has some training and understanding of the risks involved in what they're doing. A very easy way to describe this would be a passenger being somebody that's never been to sea before and industrial personnel being a technician on an offshore wind farm, for example, Mm -hmm. where they've actually gone and done training to work uh, around water. And because of the inductions and safety training and drills they do with the owner and operator of the crew transfer vessel, they are familiar with the the emergency situations on board and how to act. So the UK has has finalised regulations and published them this month Mm -hmm. um, to to put underpinning law to the carriage of more than 12 people um, or 12 persons on board a crew transfer vessel when it's coded as a workboat and the coding changes to what's called the High Speed Offshore Service Craft Code. And that there is 48 vessels to date that have gone through the, the trial process Right. Um, And and now uh, what it means is that the process has been refined. It's a lot more financially friendly for for companies and less time consuming for them. Um, And it also means administratively the MCA is able to gain better control and develop a a code which is more favourable to the industry's needs as well. So that's that's another real great success that, that we've been able to help with. Right. Yes, I know it's always been one of the issues and with people not familiar with workboats and so called cargo vessels that if you there's a lot of a cargo vessel you could have up to 12 passengers which would be for example people like myself coming on board who have no maritime training and that doesn't seem fair to compare it to somebody who's fully equipped with the safety gear that they've had a medical certification so they know they're fit and well and know what to do so it has sort of changed the game quite a bit so. yeah and and it doesn't necessarily need to stop at 24 uh, persons it could go up to 60 in fact but mm-hmm. within offshore wind if we were to transfer 60 technicians at a time we would spend the whole day transferring technicians and they wouldn't have any time to do their work yeah so 24 has just been the industry's benchmark of a, of a reasonable number yeah um, that means that you can have four teams of six people for example and that could take one to one and a half hours to, to drop them off um, and then similarly to pick them up that means they can still get a good amount of work done during the day but if you increase past 24 chances are it wouldn't be very uh, efficient for the operation that they're there to do no so lots changing and I think I guess that's where the workboat association has been particularly able to intervene is to support those changes because it's the market itself is changing and evolving it feels like weekly sometimes <laughs> there's always something new but over the years it's a very different industry to what it was 10 years ago and I know certainly from personal experience when I first started working in this industry the projects are so close to shore and they were using you know very basic vessels and now they're very sophisticated so it's constantly that, growing that's very true and the, 
modern vessels which are being designed today uh, and built, not only are they utilizing next generation fuel technologies, but mm-hmm. just simply the navigation equipment that's on board those vessels and the skills that's required from the crew in order to mm-hmm. safely manage the vessel as a whole is ranging triple, oh, if not quadruple the, the original skill sets and, and technology that we were incorporating mm-hmm. in the early crew transfer vessels of the sector. Yeah, no, I was, I was very lucky that last week um, we had MHO Asgard in Lowestoft and um, got a chance to just go on board and see it. And it's such a sophisticated vessel, just as you say, the nav- navigation equipment, and then it's got a battery bank downstairs and just managing all that equipment. And it's completely different to the early days when we were launching first vessels, of that, which were 18 metres and much simpler. So, yeah, trying to keep up with that. And something I keep meaning to ask you is we talk about workboats and I know kind of the CTVs fit in as workboats, but what else does the term workboat include? Okay, so in, in general, workboats covers all commercial craft in, in the UK's regulation mm-hmm. um, under 24 metres. Okay. Um, this could be a small rigid inflatable boat, right. which is used commercially for diving. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a, a very large 24 metre waterline length uh, vessel, which is could be three to four decks high and is supplying service and equipment to large offshore energy installations, uh, for example, doing oil replacements or, or generator campaigns. Yeah. Um, all of them come under the same regulations. And, and that's one of the intricacies of the workboat code itself is trying to make a fine balance to, to make applicable and well-governed regulation, which is just as useful for the smaller vessels of the scope as well as the larger vessels. Right. Uh, and that has that has led on to considerations being made by uh, a number of flag states on creating a large workboat code that would take vessels from 24 metres and then unrestricted by length, but restricted by 500 gross ton tonnage mm-hmm. um, so that domestically a similar code could be created in order to, to better service the, the needs of the industry and desires of their charterers, um, right. which is something I think could really positively also help the, the offshore wind industry in the future. Yeah, definitely. And do you see that those sort of lessons learnt in sort of the UK North Sea are being adopted in other parts of the world, for example? I know there's quite a few operators going to Taiwan and places. Most certainly. Um, the, the UK within its coastline has got a fantastic infrastructure to service offshore wind. Uh, hubs like Grimsby have been the world's largest offshore operations and maintenance right. hub for offshore wind for, for many years. Not only that, but the North Sea as a whole is a fantastic pool of offshore energy, but specifically offshore wind resources. We have far, by far got the most installations and the most activities happening in terms of offshore wind for anywhere in the world. There are a, areas in, for example, the APAC, China, for example, which are, are really installing a lot of offshore wind power yeah, um, said now. <laughs> but what we can say is that the lessons learned within the North Sea, whether that's the UK's waters or any of our neighbouring uh, countries, mm-hmm. are definitely being uh, franchised across the world. Um, um, as we see the Americas now adopting offshore wind, um, we've seen that designers of, of vessels, for example, yeah. are starting talks and, and have been designing and building vessels in, in America under license to, to help them to learn from what's been learned here in the North Sea. Technicians and management, which have been used to, to help create and maintain offshore wind uh, farms in the North Sea, have been moving to Taiwan as well as vessel operators. Yeah. We really see that the, the Europe 
Europe and, and especially the North Sea has become the centre of, of a web that's growing. And uh, and we're pleased to help, you know, globally to ensure that all the lessons that we have learnt mm-hmm. and some of them the hard way won't be replicated negatively across the world, but, but can be used positively to ensure that they start from knowledge base. No, it's good because it obviously saves times and more efficient economically. And also it's also about safety, isn't it? We, we want to make sure people remain safe when at sea. That's correct. We want people to have, you know, well-paid, challenging and enjoyable careers. And, and that's that's important. People need to go home and go home with all their fingers and toes intact. Yeah, and feeling well. I mean, just thinking about your, your members, have you seen over the years like much changing in the type of organisations they're coming from? Yeah, yeah, for sure. When, when the association first started in the 90s, there was a lot of, of generic uh, workboat owners. So uh, vessels that would be generically called workboats to start with, uh, things like multi-cats, smaller yeah. tugs, they grew in size and they also grew in operation. Uh, many of those original companies now are still members, but their fleets are a lot bigger mm-hmm. and they have global operations. Now, a lot of sectors have, have really boomed where workboats have been a, a valuable stakeholder. Um, that obviously includes offshore wind, um, but it includes other sectors, for example, like aquaculture, right. um, who at the moment are, are growing vast fleets of vessels. And um, we are, of course, extremely interested to support all sectors and stakeholders yeah. of the work that we do. And we work very hard to ensure that we also have a, a transparent crossover of, of understanding and knowledge between all sectors. Notably, uh, one example is the lessons learned within offshore wind for crew transfer, where we, we rack up thousands of crew transfers, if not millions a day now. Yeah. Um, there is equally millions of crew transfers happening within the aquaculture industry. And we can use those, those lessons learned from offshore wind to, to move it into other sectors. And, and equally, right. we're working to ensure that lessons learned in other sectors are coming into offshore wind. Well, that's good. It's something that never, never occurred to me about transfers taking place in other sectors because we feel that it's unique to offshore wind. I mean, we know pilots moving across the vessels doing transfers and that's kind of scary when you see them do that. But um, offshore wind was always felt like it was new, unique. Clearly, there's other industries or other sectors doing similar operations. And it, what's really important, I guess, is you might have marine crew that are working across different sectors so understanding how things should be done and taking the best practice forward is always important in every industry and would you would you think uh, the key challenges are facing vessel operators or sort of workboat operators today well decarbonization is definitely one of the topics that's that's on everyone's lips and and before coming into this meeting i, I just left a decarbonisation workshop. It's not only individual government's mm-hmm. objectives, but it's the objectives of our members' organisations and their charters yeah. to be climate change. You know, we want to decarbonise uh, enthusiastically to ensure that the careers that we're starting now for, for seafarers who are, who are starting out and for our children have a future. And, you know, we're all passionate about that. On the second part of, of the seesaw, we obviously have the fact that what we're doing is a commercial activity. So able to run viable businesses at, at cost efficient or in a cost efficient way and include next generation technology on board our vessels that will help decarbonize mm-hmm. or shorten the, foot, the, the carbon footprint of the offshore wind industry is extremely hard. You know, this costs a lot of money and we are supporting our members to make sure that they invest their capital in the correct way and are equally supported not only by government, but also 
by the the whole supply chain or or charter chain mm-hmm. um we need to ensure that that we we do this hand in hand together in offshore wind particularly there's only one pot of money yeah um, we need to make sure that it gets used in the most efficient way and and we also need to make sure that that we we have competent and skilled workforce to be able to operate whatever it is that we're designing or building in the future and and that needs to be considered when we think about this pot of money yeah you know, how do we split it? it it's it will be nigh on impossible for the vessel operators to take on the whole cost of decarbonization of their activities on their own yeah um, no, that, i think and, that has been a problem i've heard uh, operators talk about this where you have this situation where they can invest in reducing the fuel consumption of the vessel or changing that but that's a capital cost to them but the other issue is that when the vessel's chartered the charter pays for the fuel so you kind of you know in the past and this is a long time ago you know i've heard it said that they don't actually worry too much about the fuel because they don't pay for it but i know this is changed around quite a lot but and and i see many businesses out there investing in very very innovative technologies such as hybrid vessels we've got hydrogen vessel you know windcap just got their first there we're seeing a lot of hybrid ones and also the opportunity to run off hvo fuel over 100 percent or i can't remember what the other percentage is was it 20 percent or 40 percent so there are other options but it needs the engagement of the charterer and sometimes it's just trying to find that right balance and that commitment and I've heard that issue expressed as a bit of a problem and a challenge. FIO was something I was going to, to mention, actually. So it's a brilliant segue because there are crew transfer vessel operators out there who have made a decision internally that when they are financing their own fuel for their fleet, they will only be buying hydrogenated vegetable oil. Yeah, It's not only better for the environment mm-hmm. uh, in terms of carbon footprint, but it's also fantastic for the engines. A lot yes, of the I've heard time. it's very clean. <laughs> the lower mineral content, of, yeah. of hydrogenated vegetable oil actually makes the longevity and maintenance of an engine much better. Yeah. So it's, it is brilliant in terms of a fuel substance. The downsides of it is that at the moment it doesn't fall under the same subsidies as <laughs> as common diesel, yeah. um, which is used in this sector. So although vessel owners have taken it out of their own wallet to say we are committed as a company to reduce our carbon footprint and therefore when we purchase the fuel for our vessels, either to do, for example, a mobilisation to another port or to mm-hmm. deliver vessels for maintenance, they will only put hydrogenated vegetable oil in their vessels. As our contracts most commonly are written within the offshore wind industry that the charter of pays for the fuel, they would like to see that they get the most bang for their buck. Yeah. And they would like to make sure that they have a, a project that comes within their budget. And that's also yeah. understandable. But where are we going to make the step forward? Now, companies like Windcat, and I mentioned them because, because you did first, you know, they've had to support their whole supply chain to provide the hydrogen of yeah. which they'll be providing to their, their vessels. A lot of the work that we're doing is to try and unbalance this level field of what comes first, the port infrastructure or the vessels with with the next generation equipment on board. And that's a slow process, but I would say it is starting to show some signs of positivity. We have members part of the association, which are port operators. And of course, we have many vessel uh, Mm -hmm. owners as our members. I get port operators asking me, how do you think I should be acting as a port operator in terms 
terms of investing in future technology infrastructure? And the answer is, I'm not quite sure personally. Yeah. Um, we don't know yet what the demand will be on what fuel types. We also don't know yet what will be the, the most um, utilised equipment type. Um, so we're not only talking about what fuel type, but we're also talking about what equipment type. We can use hydrogen, as we've discussed, and, and hydrogenated mm-hmm. vegetable oil. We can either use them as 100% fuel yeah. ratio, or it could be a substitute. So you're substituting some of the diesel uh, for hydrogen or hydrogenated vegetable oil. And that has very different requirements and very different pressures on the supply chain. And that's something at the moment, you know, we, we haven't got the answer to. We haven't got the answers. No, I mean, one of the issues is just we, we have um, so the UK government looking to decarbonise the North Sea or certainly the UK waters. But I would have thought that it would have been, it's never going to be simple because it's regulation and, as you said, subsidies. But if the fuels were the same price, it'd be a, you know, that that would just be such a simple solution and it would push the whole industry forward. You could, you know, the ports can invest in the right infrastructure to to have HVO on port side. I mean, the other issue, looking at electric vessels, for example, trying to get charging points. I mean, it's hard enough to get charging points for cars. So we've still got a way to go on that. But the trouble is the clock's ticking. And and, um, I know the government, or certainly the UK government's talked about aspirational targets. Do you think actually we need regulatory targets and requirements to allow the investment to be made or this aspiration is good enough i know it's trying not to overburden uh, businesses and commercial operations with red tape but at the same time unless we have to do something you know sometimes it's we'd all like to do move to uh, zero carbon but the minute we have to do it we'll do it yeah i think in a sense first though in order to create suitable regulation you also need to understand the ethic of what you're trying to regulate mm-hmm. some areas of the sector will be almost self-regulating, which yeah. would mean that reg- suitable regulation would be quite easy to adapt or to create. Other areas need a little bit more of a tactical approach, mm-hmm. understanding where the pressure needs to be added in order to, to reach the intended outcome right. it is something that needs to be considered not easily by, by governments. And I know it's something that the DFT work with very hard. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I could answer to say that forcing regulation to a date to, to force decarbonisation would be suitable. And that's because at the moment, I can't personally say that all of our answers can be answered by a silver bullet in terms of right. decarbonisation. Mm-hmm. There has to be a lot of flexibility. If we took out all operational and commercial requirements from the question and simply made a calculation of vessel length fire, vessel weight, duration offshore, mm-hmm. you could plot on a graph nearly all the different vessel types and say, well, people in this catchment would be best for hydrogen, people in this catchment would be yeah. best for ammonia, people here would be best for electrification, and, and these will have to continue running on diesel for a while. Yes, we could do that, but that's completely forgetting things like uh, weather, finance. Uh, Minor all of these, <laughs> Correct, yeah, yeah. Um, emergency. All, all of these things make it an extremely tough uh, gambit. And I, I sit on the Clean Maritime Council of the UK, and, and I made the point the other day that, that plotting these vessels, I personally didn't believe was was an extremely hard thing to do but the people that know a lot better than me put me in my place and, and I have to respect that <laughs> right okay yeah it, it's difficult isn't it because it's a very diverse in, 
industry in the sense we have vessels of all sorts of shapes and sizes doing different operations, even on a daily basis. There's not one solution. We can't all go over to hydrogen or or, um, HVO or whatever. It's going to need a range of solutions. But the clock's ticking and it's, I guess, everyone's working hard together. And I do see a lot of sharing of knowledge and research going on. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we will reach our targets because I see the commitment is there and the willingness is there. And I think the knowledge is there somewhere. You know, we're testing things. Well, I've seen projects happening live in the water while they're delivering on the work. They're also carrying out research, which is very exciting, I think. Um, That's correct. And, and projects like the, the Department for Transport's Clean Maritime Demonstration mm-hmm. Competition are pivotal in promoting live demonstrations of equipment at the moment. Many of the successful applications are within feasibility stage uh, mm-hmm. and hopefully through a, a longer commitment from the government, which signs are positive that there will be a continuing commitment. We will hopefully see a lot of these things come to demonstration. And, and that's going to be, as I say, extremely pivotal in, in changing the course of play for, for the future industry. Right. Yes, yeah, so, certainly. So I understand the Workboat Association's involved very closely with Operation Zero. Can give us a bit of an update on what's happening with Operation Zero? Yeah, that's correct. So Operation Zero is a commitment that was launched by uh, the UK's Department for Transport at a live event during COP26 in Glasgow uh, last year. Um, It's brought together around 30 founding members from both the UK and international partners, all stakeholders of the offshore wind workboat supply chain, um, with a joined up agreement that they are going to champion decarbonisation of the sector. At the moment, the group hasn't yet sat for its, its first offering, but that's because there's still a lot of work happening since COP26. But this year, the plan is the group will come together. And really, the, the, the idea of this is that it can work as a catalyst to not only provide industry leadership uh, and proactive approach, but also to, to champion uh, and springboard maritime-wide decarbonisation, not just within offshore uh, wind, but in the greater maritime industry right. itself. Oh, yeah, quite an ambitious project, though. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Ambitious, hopefully being on the side of, of industry. I think really the, the DFT's brilliant leadership in this, I guess, has, has been to proactively make this catalyst to bring everybody together Together. Sometimes innovation and an advancement can be seen as um, a competitive approach. But by making an agreement like this, it means that we can put the competition aside and, and focus more on collaboration, um, which all of us together unitely have the same goal, which is a net zero marine offering in offshore wind. Yeah, that's that's always been a barrier, isn't it? You know, when you're giving away that competitive edge, but having that opportunity to share share progress and learning is, is absolutely essential. Otherwise, we just going to make progress too slowly. Uh, That's correct. And, and the worst thing we can do is is silo um, fantastic innovation. Yeah. Um, we need to make sure that it's that what we're creating in terms of, of, of content is shared to, to the best that it can be in order to advance together. Um, an, an industry needs all sides of the supply chain. And, you know, one concept on its own is, is only a concept until it's, it's picked up by industry. Yeah. And it's interesting, you were saying that uh, it's a UK government initiative 
but we've got our companies involved, organisations involved outside of the UK. Is that right? That's correct. So there has been talks with, in, in majority, North Sea states, I would say. And that's because the North Sea is, is the powerhouse of offshore wind at yeah. the moment. So yes, um, there's been conversations had with, with stakeholders in, in the North Sea states, particularly those that are um, most prominent within offshore wind, uh, to make sure this is a, a collaborative thing. Right. So since, um, it's not actually that long ago, is it COP26? It was only November last year. Has there been much progress? Well, I must admit, I was absolutely outstanding by the progress that was made and displayed at COP26. I was there for the whole of the first week and I remained in the Maritime Hub for the whole of that time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't see any of the, the, the main event uh, that was happening outside of our Maritime Hub. But just what was happening where we were was fantastic. And it was all 100% industry-led. And that's Excellent. absolutely brilliant. I must say it was industry-led. We did have brilliant, brilliant governmental uh, uptake, um, right. I- including, you know, royalty uh, uh, came. We even had the, the Prime Minister of Belgium and, and the General Secretary of, of the IMO. So there was a fantastic presence there, but all of the content that was being displayed and showed and the collaborations that were made there were industry-led. And, and that's just a, a brilliant, fascinating thing that the maritime industry can do. Yeah, I always get the impression that they do work well together because they're quite literally in the same boat. <laughs> What's taken place so far? Okay, so since COP26, where the pledges were made by those key stakeholders, um, the DFT continues to, to look around to invite stakeholders in uh, mm-hmm. to the group. Currently, they're working internally to create a, a, a plan for that group. Um, right. This means internal decisions are being made within the Department for Transport about resources and timings and, and mm-hmm. objectives, etc. And once that's been agreed, then the group will be called together for its first sitting and and, and from that point forwards, what we really plan to do with that work group is that it will be championing and reporting back on decarbonisation uh, roadmap that was made previously by uh, the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult in collaboration uh, with the Workboat Association. And, and that group will become the test group, basically, to report back to government and, and be ambassadors of that route map. Um, right. But at the moment, it's still in the, the planning phase and the introductory phase. Right. Okay. Uh, but we're ready to go with full force as soon as uh, mm-hmm. as soon as we get all authorizations in place. Well, that's good to hear that those steps are being taken at the moment. Yeah. So would you say that's going to be one of the challenges of the future, the decarbonisation of the industry? The decarbonisation of the industry is definitely one element of the challenges that faces the modern workboat market. Um, particularly within the UK, we can't look around Brexit. Brexit has had a big hiccup on the operational performance of the British workboat fleet. Mm-hmm. Immigration rules are changing nearly monthly. The UK's withdrawal from the EU has meant that individual agreements need to be created with each stakeholder country. And so far, those agreements haven't considered operations of domestically operating vessels. Right. Um, a lot of the wider maritime industry is internationally operating. And to explain that to to people that that don't quite understand, if a vessel is working within 12 nautical miles of a country and it does not cross that 12 nautical mile line, that's classed as a a domestic voyage. And that vessel comes under the labour rules and immigration rules of the country of where it's operating. Mm -hmm. If the vessel is working outside and crossing that international line, international waters, or going into another country's territorial waters, that classes as an international voyage. And therefore, 
before you come under international shipping regulations and you're exempt from the domestic policy. Unfortunately, UK operators are struggling now in hiring skills from Europe, of which we relied on specifically for engineering purposes. This is not necessarily negative. It provides a brilliant opportunity for, for British talent. And we are working extremely hard, for example, on apprenticeships for, right. for engineers. But it takes time to get those skills to, to usable uh, competency. We, we need to have an apprentice start their apprenticeship, end it, and then, you know, a couple of years worth of on-site or on-the-job learning and, and yeah experience before we can replace all the skills that we've lost as a result of Brexit. Um, and of course, there has been some work permit schemes in place, like the Frontier Workers Permit that have helped. Right. And within offshore wind, we've got an exemption for a, a temporary exemption for workers in the offshore wind industry. But that will soon come to an end. And what we're offering in the UK isn't being reflected or mirrored in, in external countries. Right. Um, if at the moment it's becoming harder for UK seafarers, not the companies, but the sea ferris themselves to work in territorial waters of neighbouring countries. That unfortunately is meaning that UK companies are then being classed lower down in the tender process for work because yeah. of the fact that the labour they're employing is possibly undertrained or unskilled or just not to the, the quality or what's being expected from the offshore wind market. Gosh, that, that is a huge issue. I hadn't, I hadn't appreciated that at all. And it would explain the things I've been seeing about trying to recruit local people into uh, into the vessel market and like you say you you need skilled and experienced people they can give them the skills but experience doesn't come overnight it can't be learnt in the classroom it has to be and the the offshore is a dynamic environment and so it's not just decarbonisation and remaining commercially viable you've still got that other issue of just trying to get enough skilled labour to or, correct or... And, and, and balancing the skills is is the issue um, if we opera, operate our vessels in Europe because of the last 10 years for example of the crew transfer industry it means that we've got a lot of technical talent and skills within Europe but mm -hmm. less uh, navigational talent because right. we've been mainly uh, relying on UK uh, masters and officers for mm -hmm. navigational duties and if we work in the UK, we've got very high navigational talent, but we're lacking on engineering skills. So it's trying to find that balance. And, and before Brexit, it was balanced. Yeah. Um, and because of Brexit at the moment, we're still working hard to try and uh, return to a, to a suitable equilibrium. All right. That's a really useful insight on some of the challenges going on that maybe we hadn't appreciated because we're not sort of in directly involved in the market. And I'd just like to thank you for your input today and telling us more about the Workboat Association and your work and well, being that opportunity to deal with some of these challenges at a government level and also with operators and the rest of the supply chain. Thanks very much for coming along and uh, joining us here in the Crow's Nest. And I think there'll be further news later on down the line. Um, we'll have to come back and talk to you again in the future about how these challenges have changed or being met or if there's something else coming up and that we need to be dealt with. But yeah, thanks very much, Kerry, for joining us and um, hope to see you again soon. Certainly. Thank you very much and we'll keep 4C offshore up to date with all the news as it comes out. That'd be brilliant. Thank you. Many thanks for joining me here in the Crow's Nest. If you'd like to find out more about any of the topics discussed or about 4C offshore, please see the show notes where I've included details and links. If you've enjoyed listening to our show today, please subscribe to our channel and get notifications of new episodes. The Crow's Nest is a 4C offshore production.